<coughs> Podcast Network Asia. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. I feel like I've done this already once today. <laughs> today, I'm joined by Mark Ruffett, an entrepreneur in residence at AI and Robotics Ventures, and a co-founder and CEO of Easy Guides. Mark, how are you doing today? Now that I can properly hear you. <laughs> doing pretty well. Thanks for uh, inviting me, uh, Michael. This is very exciting. It's my pleasure. Look, why don't we give the audience a little bit of your background, start wherever you want, just for a little bit of context, and then we can talk about the stuff that you're doing. Sure. So I'm originally from Switzerland, from uh, born and raised in Geneva, and moved to uh, Asia about 12 years ago. I first worked with the uh, United Nations as environmental consultant, did this for a couple of years, and then moved to the travel industry. That was a 180-degree change in my career. But I joined the industry as business development manager, trying to yeah, to develop, to, uh, to open a new market opportunities for established tour companies and tour operators here. Did this for uh, several years. And then uh, more recently, about two years ago, I founded my first uh, startup in the travel tech. This came after seeing, identifying pain points in the industry, more specifically in operations and in uh, the way tour operators are dealing with their tour guides here and managing and assigning their tour guides. I thought, okay, well, this is not going the way it should be. And with the technology available around here, we could do something better. So this is where uh, Easy Guide started. And uh, very recently, I joined ARV. So um, it's a subsidiary company from PTTEP, so the largest oil and gas uh, company here in Thailand. I joined their venture team. So they're basically acting as a venture studio and trying to develop new technologies and offering those technologies to um, cutting-edge industries here in Thailand and in the region. And I'm helping them in their commercial uh, departments, yes. So this sounds like a fascinating story. And to be fair, I love the storytelling part of what I do. I want to back up a little bit, if that's okay with you. Sure. So originally from Switzerland, what encourages or what inspires a guy like you from Geneva to sort of pack up his bags and work for the UN, but also work for the UN in Thailand? What was the inspiration there? So yeah, this goes back, we have to uh, backtrack. I was a teenager back then, 16 years old. And back then my parents were already travel addicts. They um, used to travel all around the world when they were a bit younger. But one country, they loved one country in particular that was back in the mid 90s, late 90s, and it was Myanmar. Can I ask you this though? So back in the 90s, Myanmar, I was there then. And I literally just crossed the border and was scared, right? Because all of the news about Myanmar back then was bad. What what was it about that? Like, was your mom and dad working in Myanmar? Like, what got them to go there? And then what got them to fall in love with it? So my mother, she had been working in the travel industry her entire life. The cool story, so one of her interns, he actually saw, so that was, yeah, mid-90s, late-90s, he saw an opportunity in Myanmar to, because, yeah, tourism in Myanmar was almost inexistent at that time. So he was, yeah, he was the adventure one. So he took a fax machine, uh, his luggage, jumped on his fir- on uh, the first plane and uh, left Geneva and went to Yangon and established, like, his very first tour operator travel industry there. 
there, tour operator company there. Yeah, he was in good touch with my mother. So he was the one who invited them to visit Myanmar. So when they, so as I told you, they've been back then, they've been traveling all around the world and they discovered this untouched destination like that was like full of mysteries and and they realized that the news the headlines about the the country that it was a dangerous destination to travel so the, the yeah the headlines were very negative about Myanmar but it's I'm sure you can confirm that actually once you got into Myanmar uh, you realize that it was at least for a traveler it was a very safe destination to travel through of course I'm not talking about the provinces where Today, as of today, they're still in conflict with the central government. But since there were many things to to discover in this country and it was a very safe destination. So they went there like six times, seven times, like sometimes twice a year. And one year I was 16 years old and they said they offered me, okay, let's. uh, Hey, Mark, what are you doing? Uh, Yeah, I I know you would love to stay in Switzerland alone for three weeks and have the house (laughs) for yourself with your friends. But, but come to Myanmar and do something. Come to Myanmar and do something real. And see something different than Switzerland. Do you think it's kind of cool that as a 16-year-old, you got to learn that what you see on the news is not the reality in almost all cases? In other words, being, and now that you live in Thailand for what, almost 15 years, this idea that like the news reports things and you're just living it every day and you're thinking, that's not what's going on here. And again, your parents took that risk, went to Myanmar and figured that out as well back then, yeah? So that's an interesting question. But actually, when they offered me that trip to travel with them to, uh, to Myanmar, I didn't know anything about this country. I oh, didn't know enough. anything about Asia. But yeah, so, so I went there. I was like, okay, let's go, Myanmar. Fair enough. But it was when I got back to Switzerland and I told... All my friends at school, at high school, I was very enthusiastic about this, about like this part of the world. And I, I quickly realized that part of my future would be related one way or another to this part of the world. And the reaction from most of people was like, yeah, but Myanmar, it's, uh, why, why, why do you go there? It's a military dictatorship. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing to do there. Don't go there. And, uh, and there is this embargo against, against Myanmar. Are you crazy? So, and then I realized then actually this shaped my a new mindset. I was like, okay, yeah, don't trust everything that you that you read in the news. Make your own opinion. And um, yeah, it's um, it it really it was a game changer. That trip, I still tell my parents today. Uh, I thank them for offering me this opportunity that shaped my my life. So, 15 years later, today, yeah, 20 years later, I'm still here. I mean, not in Myanmar. I'm in Thailand, but I'm still in Asia. And I think that was the best thing that has. But it had ever happened to me uh, back then, yes. Just out of curiosity, what business were your parents in? In other words, were they in the travel business as well? So my mother made her career. So she's as an air hostess Got for it. Swissair back, in the, back awesome. in the days. Awesome. My father, so and then she moved to a tour operating and uh, destination management companies operating in Switzerland and in Europe. My father, not at all. My father was an entrepreneur, a printer. He uh, built his own company, and uh, yeah, he made all his career doing some printing, uh, printing works. So, but thanks to yeah, he was already very much addicted to uh, traveling. So yeah, it was a good match with uh, <laughs> with my mother, to say the least. I won't even ask where they met each other. But what I, what I do want to know is, what was it like transitioning from 
working at the UN in Thailand. And the UN, and people don't, may or may not know this, but the UN in Thailand is actually a very large operation, right? I think it's actually the regional base. I don't know that for sure, but that's what I think. But what was it like transitioning from that into the travel industry? Just to continue yeah, the, uh, the narrative, so, mm-hmm. so I, I decided to move to Asia, finish my studies, mm-hmm. and I, I, I wanted to, I really wanted to find, to settle in, in Myanmar, to settle down there, to find a, um, a decent job, interesting, and uh, everything that goes along with it. But yeah, it was still in the, yeah, 2000, looking at 2003. So the country was still was still closed at that time, right. was still locked. It was very difficult for foreigners to find a job there, especially with no experience, such as me at that time. <laughs> um, but um, so I looked around and Thailand already offered more opportunities for uh, for foreigners. For sure. And um, yeah, I got I got lucky. I got this internship position at the UN in uh, environment program. And it's an internship that turned into consulting consulting services uh, later on. So this is how I got my uh, chance, opportunity to work, to join the uh, United Nations. And you're right, the office here is a regional office for Southeast Asia. So it's pretty big. There are hundreds of people working there. It was amazing. So, so for me, it was my first professional experience in a real world. And jumping in the UN is, of course, it's, it's, um, it's you meet people people like yeah, like very talented people people with amazing backgrounds so it's it it really is the best opportunity there is to to start your career so i got involved in different projects um, most of them were related to waste management uh, waste management programs in southeast asia mostly in malaysia and also in the uh, pacific island countries okay um, and also doing some work so we had some successful projects going on with regard that we're focusing on building retrofitting in Bangkok. And that was, I feel that was the most exciting part of, uh, of my, yeah, of all my contribution to the UN at that time, because at the table were sitting people from the government, people from the private sector, people from NGOs and representatives from, from the UN. And we were all working to, yeah, we, we all had a same Define objective in our in in our mind, and we successfully refurbished a couple of towers, like condominium towers here in in Bangkok, to make them more energy efficient, uh, water consumption efficient, and so forth. So it was really nice. And to answer your question, how why this shift to the travel industry? Unfortunately, the financial crisis hit us very hard. 2007, 8, 9, and all the budgets, the budgets for that were allocated to environment and sustainability were the first budgets to be cut. So there was simply no money on the table to pursue all those projects that we started. Then I thought, okay, my, my background is environment. Now it's a very difficult, uh, we're, we're, we're looking at very challenging times ahead. Uh, maybe it's time to look for to, for a career change and look at opportunities in another industry. Knowing that my mother was uh, had been working in the travel industry for quite some time, I asked her if she had some contacts around and she could help me uh, to find, yeah. Good for you. Some interesting opportunities and uh, that's what happened. Yeah, and the company you were working for in the travel space, at least initially, was doing some interesting things at one point, right? So 
That's that's kind of cool. But what was the? I love the fact that your father was also an entrepreneur because I think at some level it kind of runs in the blood a bit, right? Yes, yes. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He has always been yeah supportive, like extremely supportive of me working for a company, corporation, like the United Nations or the private or uh, private companies. But but of course, I have always admired him the way he built his own. Yeah, company, printing company, and he also back in uh, like thirty years ago, forty years ago, like everybody needed a printer. Exactly. Uh, today, you can basically print your stuff using a desktop machine, like a, a, a printing machine at home. You don't really need printers. So he also had to navigate through quite a crisis in his industry, and he managed to survive until his his retirement until his retirement days so so i admired him and i thought well i'm maybe if i'm lucky i have this in my blood so let's uh, let's start a journey on my own as well and uh, that's what i did what did you learn you, when you were in the travel industry you said you noticed some of the pain points i'm really curious and we can talk about covid later because that's just a different it's just a different thing right but when you were there during what i'll call normal times what were some of the pain points that you learned in the travel industry because for those of us that travel but aren't in the industry we may not know right yeah so yeah that's uh that's that's a really interesting uh, uh, question so i got the chance to work in pretty much every single department there is in the travel industry sales business development okay. customer management operations and so forth sales so all the focus is usually is put on sales because it's the sales department that generates money for the industry and with no for, for the company and with no 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 money there is uh, there is nothing to do right so there are loads of of solutions that have been developed so softwares uh, applications and tools that have been developed to support the sales effort booking systems you name it but when you look at operations so operation department pretty much like long story short, they take care of everything that happens post sales, anything. So once the booking is confirmed, then the booking is pushed to the operation team and the operation team has to reconfirm that all suppliers will commit to to the booking. They have to reconfirm all services and they also have to find tour guides because yeah, tour guides are usually booked. They're not booked and assigned when the uh, booking is confirmed by customers, tour guides are usually assigned only 30 days before travelers reach, uh, the, the customers reach the destination country. Why is that? It's simply because tour guides, they hate committing for jobs that is like two months in the future, three months or, or yeah. four months in the future. And it's understandable. So when I was working with operation teams, especially the team taking care of tour guide assignment, I was looking at them. I was like, wow, they're doing all their stuff. Like it's always last minute. It's always like they have to use outdated contact sheet, Excel sheets to keep in touch with their, with, with their tour guides. There is no system. There is no software um, out there to, to help, help them, them, to help them. Yes. And on the other hand, a tour company always prides itself by saying, yeah, work with us because we have the best tour guides in the world, which is fair enough. Tour guides are often considered as 
the business card of the company. They are the face of the, the travel company. Sure. They are on the front line of operations, but behind the curtains, it's a total mess for most of the time, and especially in high season when there's not enough guides out there, bookings are still coming, and you don't know where to find where, where to find a, a tour guide. Some tour guides will cancel at the last minute, so it's a total mess. So I thought, okay, with all the technology that there is out there, how could we build something to support those teams, to help them find guides quicker, assign them, and follow up with those tour guides in, in the best possible way. But this is interesting. So this is this is a B2B business, not a B2C business. In other words, just if I understand this correctly, in other words, if I'm coming from France into Thailand, I don't grab the tour guide myself. That's not what you're doing. What you're doing is you're giving the tour operators a platform. And again, I could be wrong. Tell me if I'm right, though. You're no, you're, you're totally right, yes. Yes, this is an interesting model, which I hadn't thought before, because I know people that trying to do this like directly B2C, which has its own issues, right? But now you're building a platform. Yeah, it's almost like Airbnb for, no, it's, it's better than that. Because you're building a platform that's B2B for guides so they can connect to tour operators. Yeah? Exactly, yeah. So it's a kind yeah. of, see it as a kind of a mix between TripAdvisor, Tinder, and Facebook for tour guides. Yeah, All mixed it. together. I got it. And designed for the B2B industry, yes. And the, the, the great thing about it is like still today, so we've been working on this, building our platform, acquiring some early adopters. It's still a blue ocean today because, again, all those softwares, all the attention now out there is focusing. Every The, the spotlight is on sales and operations are always left apart. So we were the only ones there to think, yeah, okay, let's build something for operations. And this is how we became quite successful lately. Yeah, so just to give you an equivalency, when I joined Morgan Stanley in the 80s, one of the first things they taught us was that, and again, this just separates into the sale, which is a trade, right, in on a trading desk, and operations, which is the back end that processes that trade and actually makes it possible to make sure that the money you expected to make could physically be processed and make mm -hmm. money. It's the same thing, right, but just in a different vertical. So it's the same thing. In other words, me booking a me booking a trip and then booking a tour is the trade. But if you can't process it on the back end, I mean, let's be fair, you're screwed, right? Because exactly, yes. it won't turn into money. So we had a whole course during our training time at Morgan Stanley. They, we had this whole class on after the trade. And that was about how to properly process it so you could understand that even if the trade was amazing, if you couldn't process it, the trade would fail, which is just like the tour guide not showing up. And it, that means now you have a claim and you can't make money. Exactly, yes. Got it. Okay. Exactly. Go ahead. That's interesting. So the idea was there, and then we thought, okay, how can we make it even better? Then we thought, so that was two years ago, two and a half years ago, when we first had that idea with my other co-founder. It was the the time when Uber and Grab were just like, it, it was a pretty new, well, a little bit more than that, three years ago. We saw the rise of Uber, of Grab, and those mobile based solutions to connect people together, to right. connect um, a contractor with a service provider. Platforms, yeah. So we, we, we thought, okay, let's build this whole tour guide ecosystem where a tour company can, when they need a guide, they can filter guides based on guide profile, guide expertise, but also user reviews. So in one click, a tour company can now figure out which guide is available for what 
travel period, but also they have a clear overview on the guide profile. And this is totally new because before that, before then, you had no access, no visibility on tour guide expertise. So when you all the guides that you knew were not available and you were looking for and, and you had to find another guide, how could you judge its expertise? How could you judge how good that guide is without with no visibility at all? So now we provide tour companies with full visibility, transparency, and they can connect with more tour guides. Tour guides can connect with more tour companies. And that's the whole point of it. We want to build bridges in the industry and make sure that everybody connects with everybody because that's the key. Do you want to know how I collaborate with some of the best brands in the world at Asia Tech Podcast? I use Podmetrics. This is the best way to connect to your favorite brands and monetize your podcast. If you are a podcaster, you can sign up now at podmetrics.co and use the referral code Asia Tech Podcast, all one word, to get full control of your show's monetization, regardless of your show's size. And if you're a brand and want to collaborate with the Asia Tech Podcast, head over to advertiser.podmetrics.co, it's spelled like it sounds, and sign up now. And you have like a two-way sales issue here, right? In other words, you've got to convince the guides to get on the platform, and then you have to convince the operators to get on the platform so that they can meet there. If you can do that, right, there's the possibility of building what I would say is just a gigantic business. Because tourism in Asia, in general, but Southeast Asia in particular, it was growing at double the rate that the rest of the world was growing. Now, COVID has gotten in the way, but things will get back to normal, no? That's right. Yes, that's right. So it, it was still a, fair, a fast growing uh, industry just before COVID. Now, yeah, COVID came with all uh, its challenges. But you're right. It was a bit of a, we, we had that issue of the the chicken in the egg. So who, who gets on the platform first? So we studied uh, uh, Uber and Grab. How did they right, right, manage right. to solve that issue? So the way we fixed this was very uh, in the in the early days of Easy Guide, we um, partnered up with Association of Tour Guides in Thailand, and especially with the uh, Professional Guide Association of Thailand, which is the largest of the guide associations here in Thailand. They have about two thousand five hundred tour guides uh, as members, and partnering up with them means full access to their database. So we were able to grab all those, to bring all those those tour guides in the platform. And then with all those guides, we were able to meet with tour operators and tell them, hey, look at, just connect and see how many guides we have now on the platform. Right. And this is how we got the first operators to join our platform. And that was just before COVID, of course. So when you, you, sh- you should know this, I think. When somebody books a trip, let's say through a tour operator, right? Let, let's just simplify everything. Let's say there are, there's a one in there's a one tour operator universe in Thailand and a one guide universe, right? So somebody from again from France or from Switzerland books a trip here through a tour operator, and then they book a guide. Very simple process, right? But let's yeah. say the guide. Let's say you're worried that the guide's going to quit or that the tour operator is going to you know go bankrupt or whatever. Is there insurance around that for the consumer that's booking that thing? In other words, let's say you book a trip and your guide, you get to Thailand or get to anywhere in Southeast Asia and your guide cancels. Is there insurance that's being sold around that at all or no? 
Of course, it's the the decision. It's still the guide who who decide who has the uh, the the last word. So if for any reason valid or not, he has to cancel last minute. This is something we we cannot like prevent a tour guide to cancel for good or bad reason. Right. But what we where we help is that with our ecosystem, with full fetched ecosystem, what we can guarantee is instant confirmation. So the moment a tour guide cancels, the next on the list can be immediately and in- instantly confirmed. So we can find replacement for tour guides with just with one click. Right. And that is a little revolution in the industry. So you don't have to, as a tour company, if you're a tour guide who was supposed to meet with your clients at, at the airport this morning, calls you and says, sorry, I canceled. I have good reason. I cannot fulfill my, uh, my commitment. Before, it was total stress for the person in charge because they had to call like uh, send whatsapp lines scramble around how can i do that now they just connect they just enter they just look at the uh, the folder online so the the booking online and they just press enter and the booking will move to the next guide in line so and the next guide in line can just confirm and there you go so it really it really solves this issue i love it and the reason why i asked you this right this was not a question of placing blame. This was a question of there is a business opportunity here, and I'll tell you why I think so. Okay, so again, in this simplified world where there's a traveler or a group of travelers, a travel company, right? So a, a booking company and a guide. If at the last minute the traveler's like car breaks down and they can't get on the plane and they just can't come here, right? The tour the tour guide was ready. So they gave up their, they sold their time and now they have to fill their time too. And sure, they have the easy guide platform so they can then book another thing at the last minute, but it's hard to book at the last minute, right? Depending on how many cancellations there are. But if you could sell them insurance, what we call bite-sized insurance, and I know this through my InsurTech podcast, Mm -hmm. then it would eliminate another level of stress. Plus it would mean that you as Easy Guide could offer them a service that nobody else is offering them if you partner up with an insurance provider who's willing, an insure tech company, who's willing to provide them bite-sized insurance, right? Because it's not a policy that's going to pay them 10 million bucks. It may pay them $750 or $300, which to them is completely meaningful. Yeah. But the premium that they'd have to pay to protect themselves would be super low because the likelihood that someone's going to cancel is low but they're still protected. So now you're running, because my feeling on this is that anybody who builds a platform like yours should somehow build an insurance product into it because in Thailand, but in also in Southeast Asia in particular, um, there's a massive amount of growth happening in the insurance and insure tech space. And it gives you an edge when you hire a guide. You can say, because you can say to the guide, look, for pick a number every month, and you can work on the underwriting with an insurance company and say, we want to insure all of our guides so that if there's a last minute cancellation, we have an insurance policy for them so they still get paid. It's just an interesting, another interesting part of your business model that can then convince people to work with you as opposed to working with other companies, right? So if nobody else does it, or if you're the first person to do it, there are plenty of ways to build this in. And there are plenty of ways to build it into the travel, to the other things in travel that you're doing. But on the guide side, if they lose income, but it gets replaced through their insurance policy that you provide them, now you're building an incredible platform. That is amazing, amazing idea. And um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Speaking of insurance, yes, yeah, so far we are 
bringing the uh, the insurance dimension to to the easy guide ecosystem awesome um however as of today the insurance focuses on liability for tour guides and i really like your idea to expand this uh, and to really offer an extra service to an extra guarantee for tour guides and for uh, the stakeholders that are involved in the ecosystem that that is really nice yeah yeah because this is this is a theme actually in like because a tour guide is really just an old-fashioned version of the gig economy right in other words they don't work for anybody they'll take a job yeah. as they get it but they do live off of that and if they lose that job or lose that gig well, then they're out of luck because they don't get paid. But if somebody cancels at the last minute, that's not the tour guide's fault. And because it's rare, it can be priced from an insurance perspective. And they should, at some level, get paid for that. Yeah, Even if it's not 100%, even if it's like 70%, that would be neat, I think. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so hopefully that's interesting to you. I want <laughs> I love this idea. Sorry. I, I want to switch gears with you a little bit, if you don't mind, because I want to talk about the EIR thing at PTTEP. Absolutely. I want to understand like how that came about and what it's like, because I don't know, like I've never been an entrepreneur in residence. I want to understand what it's like, what your responsibilities are, what the expectations are, and what your expected output is. In other words, what do they expect you to do as well? So a um, little bit of a background, AI and Robotics Ventures is so a, a subsidiary of uh, PTTEP. So PTTEP created ARV about two years ago to focus on cutting-edge technologies and to explore business opportunities where those those technologies could be, yeah, what, what opportunities could those those technologies open Got it. in the wider sense. Got it. ARV works as a venture studio. So, so the business model is rather simple. You identify a market, you create a project, you create a business plan, you basically do, yeah, some kind of... Um, yeah, you follow the model of what a startup would do to create, to turn a concept, an idea into a workable and a workable product that you can sell, with the objective of creating business units around those those products and spinning them off and to sell them and to sell them uh, down the road. So that's that's the uh, that's the, the the whole business model of ARV. Got it. So. Two years ago, when they started, the focus was very much on three core technologies, three apl applications, areas of technologies. The first one uh, was and still is asset inspection using drones. So this is a fast-growing, uh, fast-growing uh, uh, market, fast-growing industry. So long story short, now instead of sending human to do some inspection works on flares on offshore platforms and on some dangerous uh, industrial sites, well, you you send drones, and those drones can capture images, and you process those images, and based on those images, you make uh, your decisions. You can identify if you can identify cracks. You can identify um, if something needs to be repaired, um, but you take out the human risk and the human error uh, from the equation. So that is the first focus of ARV is to develop this market in Thailand. So in the other in other parts of the world, in the US, in um, Israel, and some part of you and some countries in Europe, this market is quite mature. But in Thailand, it's still yeah, in the early stage. So we found a pretty um, uh, good opportunity to invest into this, uh, this market. So did you do that internally or did you work with companies like 
Centravision or so, other so we are like we are doing this. So the technology is developed in house, and of course, our number one partner, cool. our main partner as of today, remains PTT. So um, simply because it gives us access to uh, assets. And uh, we can develop technology with them, with our preferred partner. It's, it's also our mother company. We are building partnerships with technology providers, um, most of them in Thailand, but some of them also in, uh, based in other countries, with the objective to develop a full-fetched ecosystem, a one-stop service for future clients who are interested in solutions to do asset inspections on their uh, on industrial sites. Really interesting. And I'm just amazed that you like so you have this huge opportunity to work inside a big company that's sponsoring this sort of venture building thing. Are there other things about that you've learned? And I want to get back to this idea about, you know, working in Bangkok, working in Asia, now that you're working at a big company. You know, one of the things we talked about earlier was this idea that what you see on the news isn't necessarily always true. Mm -hmm. And that when you're actually in the environment, you can have insights about that environment that people outside it can't have. And do you think that there's maybe a misconception about how hard people are working here? Do you know what I mean? So the startup world in Thailand in general is not very popular. Thailand is not considered as a host country for startups because of its administration, because uh, yeah, it's it's simply hard for the startup world to, to flourish in the country. If you compare with Singapore, for, for instance, Singapore hosts the highest number of startups in all uh, different kinds of industries because you can simply, it's very easy to open a company. There is no administration burden on, uh, on your shoulders, but Thailand is a bit different. So Thailand is perceived as a country where it's difficult to create startups, but also where access to talent is limited. So this is general perception. I'm sure you read this also all around in the in the in the, the newspapers, that like dedicated uh, specialized papers. Sure. And sure. I disagree on both points. First, the yeah. First, tell me why. When we talk about administration, and here I talk about my personal experience with Easy Guide. I'm a foreigner. My co-founder is a foreigner. So <laughs> already we started, yeah, we, we didn't have all the cards in our hands to start a new company in, in this country because of <laughs> yeah, the perceived administration right. and you have you, you, you need a Thai partner in the uh, in, in your company in order to get the paperwork going and everything that goes around with. That is not true. So there is this, uh, the, in Thailand, the uh, Thailand Board of Investment, which is uh, the BOI. The BOI. Which is an entity, it's a government agency that is here to help entrepreneurs open their company and start their own businesses, including foreigners. The BOI is perceived as a very, like, yeah, old-fashioned kind of agency where it's very hard to, that, that is slow and not helpful. And on the contrary, they are super fast. They are willing to help. And we went through this whole BOI certification. It took us, okay, it's, it's not an easy work. Okay. It requires dedication and passion, 
but it took us six months to get that certification. After that, everything went super quickly. Like the company uh, incorporation, uh, hiring people, foreigners, not foreigners, and they have been supportive, extremely supportive from day one. So that's the first misconception. If you want to open, a, if you have an idea, if you believe in your idea, and your idea, of course, falls, yeah, uh, fulfills the criteria that uh, from the, the BOI, there are certain criteria. You cannot just open a, a sausage factory and think you can you can get all the benefit from from a BOI. <laughs> but at least if it's if it's tech oriented, right. you get pretty good chances of getting that certification. The second is access to talent. The second point, the misconception about Thailand. When we started Easy Guide, we were under the assumption that it would be super hard to find talented coders and developers in Thailand. So we hired foreigners for different reasons. So we had in-house uh, developers um, and then COVID hit and then we had to make some structural changes and some, some strategic changes. And unfortunately, we had to terminate the contra employment contract of our foreigner staff. And we thought, okay, now let's let's investigate a bit let's let's dig in a little bit further uh, uh, into this basket this pool of local talents and i can tell you they are especially in the tech world it's bangkok and thailand is full of talented people local talented people so again this perception of yeah the the absence of talented people in the tech world in thailand is a misconception so we found super qualified people who are working extremely well now local and the the english could be a barrier sometimes but it's just a small barrier it's nothing like don't be scared about that they, they speak good enough english to to pursue like a tech project and here i'm not mentioning i'm not even mentioning the talents that surround me at arv i'm the only foreigners there uh, the only foreigner we are 80 staff i'm the only foreigner Around me, I'm, I'm surrounded with wow. people that I'm learning every day from them. I really want to emphasize here, don't listen to people saying that Thailand is not a good host country for your startup. If you're interested in a tech startup, go for it. You will find everything you uh, you need here. Yeah, look, I still think there's a big opportunity and it's already being taken advantage of here, actually for creating what I'll call development arbitrage, right? In other words, the tech talent here is actually way better than most people say. And what that means is that you have companies like Senna Labs, right? That build great tech teams, do great development and build world-class and world-beating technology for companies here. And their staff is, you know, 98% or 99% Thai or maybe 100% Thai. And it's actually changing the game here in, in the perception thing. And that's one of the reasons why I love to tell these stories. I'm going to end this here, but that's one of the reasons why I love to tell these stories. And that is because I want to change the perception that people have about what's happening in Southeast Asia, not just from a foreigner perspective, not just from a local perspective, but from that combined perspective that says there's a lot of great development stuff happening here, whether it's on the easy guide side, whether it's on the PTTEP and the entrepreneur and resident side, or just on the sort of building a development shop here that builds products, not just for locals, but for globals as well. And I want people to know that. Anyway, look, I really appreciate your time today. 
Mark. Today has been awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, Mark Ruffin, an entrepreneur in residence in AI and robotics ventures and a founder and CEO of Easy Guide. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.